Hello, everyone. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. We're going to take a look at the latest class profile from the Stanford Graduate School of Business and talk about how it compares with Harvard and Wharton with my co-hosts, Caroline Diorki Edwards and Maria Wickvilla. Maria is the founder of Applicant Lab. Caroline, of course, is the co-founder of Fortuna Admissions and the former director of admissions at NCOT. So we are going to talk a little bit about the new class profile at Stanford Graduate School of Business. There are some surprises in, in the numbers. If you've been reading Poets and Quants, you will know what those surprises are, but we're going to put them into some context uh, with Maria and Caroline. And then we're also going to do a little bit of crystal ball gazing. We're going to look five years, maybe even 10 years ahead, and speculate on how the MBA landscape and the landscape for all business schools is likely to change. You know, we've been through an incredibly disruptive time with the pandemic and the increase in the use of technology to deliver education. And so we wanted to set aside a little bit of time to talk about, okay, what are the long-term trends here? What does this look like over the next five to 10 years? What are we going to see that's different from today? First off, let's talk about Stanford. So one surprise in the numbers at Stanford was the application volume. You know, we had also reported uh, earlier, of course, that Harvard was up 5% in applications. Wharton was up 2.5%. They tended to be on the low end of the schools that are reporting application increases. You know, Michigan was up 50-plus percent. Indiana Kelly up 60-plus uh, percent. You'll note that uh, there were 12% increases at Cornell, at Yale, at Duke, at MIT, 11% at Dartmouth Tuck, and 10% at Georgetown McDonough. So Stanford is up less than 1%, which is something of a surprise. It's actually 0.6 of 1%. And I think that's an interesting number. And we'll talk a little bit about why we think that may be so. More importantly, perhaps, Stanford established a new class average GMAT record for any business school outside of a few schools in India where the GMATs are ridiculously high. They hit a 738, which is five points higher than the previous year when they hit a 733. The new score puts the class that just entered in the 97th percentile, the top 3% of all GMAT test takers in the world, which is really intriguing. Now, Caroline, what do you make of this? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I'm sure it's it? not intentional. <laughs> no, I mean, a higher GMAT score is uh, average is, is a double-edged sword because the issue for schools is that, you know, whilst on one hand it can be seen as a signal of quality and no doubt it does speak to the incredibly qualified pool that, that Stanford enjoys every year and, you know, the competition amongst those candidates and how hard they're working to prepare themselves for those tests is quite incredible. But on the other hand, the schools are aware that that is also a deterrent and it functions as, as a deterrent to some candidates from applying and some candidates who they would love to see in their pool, right? You don't have to have a GMAT of, you know, 730 or 740 to get into Stanford and, and Stanford admissions does not want you to have that perception. And I know that they're concerned that sometimes they miss out on some great candidates because people self-select out because they assume if they haven't got a 730, 740, then they're just not in the, you know, in the game. So 
you know, it, it's, it, it is a signal of quality of one aspect of one limited aspect of quality, but it's, um, it also has some, does have some negative consequences for, for the schools. And it is interesting that, that has gone up at the same time as, you know, really stable application volume, really no, no, no significant change there. And I, I think that shows that, you know, those, those top schools just have an incredibly consistent pool of strong applications coming through year after year. And when there is, you know, as we've discussed before, when, there's, when there is variation in application volume and suddenly lot, uh, people applying because there's um, a change in circumstances, though in this case it's the pandemic and, you know, previous cycles, it's just been, a, you know, a normal recession, economic downturn, more people throw their hat into the ring. And those are not always the best qualified candidates or the very best quality candidates. So I think that has been the case here that um, that the top schools have seen pretty steady volume and the schools that are still, you know, great schools, but not the, the M7, necessarily the M7 schools have seen increased volume because of that sort of, you know, variable quality in, the, in, in that increased um, volume of applications that's coming through. Yeah, and Caroline, you know, it was only a few years ago that Kirsten Moss publicly said that she was worried that the high GMAT scores is certain and the historically the highest in the world uh, for an MBA program of any prestige. What was in fact discouraging people, you know, they were at 737 for the entering classes in 2016 and 2017. And it dropped to 732 in 2018, and it was widely interpreted as Kirsten actually dropping uh, the GMAT because of the comments that she made publicly that she felt it was discouraging many really good applicants from applying. That year, in 2018, entering class, Wharton managed to tie Stanford for the average at 732. Since then, Wharton has fallen behind. And even though Wharton's average went up by 11 points this year, uh, which would have equaled last year's uh, GMAT average at Stanford. Stanford managed to increase by five, so they stay ahead. It's also noteworthy that on every other level, GRE scores as well as GPA, Stanford is number one in the world. Their uh, GPA uh, this year is uh, 3.78. The GRE is even up a point uh, on the quant side. So, you know, these these numbers tend to matter if you care about rankings. I don't think Stanford cares all that much uh, because they, you know rankings really don't determine application volume or interest at Stanford. But Wharton certainly is it seems to be very conscious of that. Maria, do you think a seven thirty eight might discourage applicants? I agree with Caroline that I think it discourages certain applicants, but I also think it has the opposite effect where sometimes. You know, when we emphasize so much these these quantitative data points, someone who has like a 740 but is otherwise completely unremarkable will say, "Hoo-hoo, I'm above the average, so Stanford here I come." <laughs> right. And so then it just becomes it becomes like this huge disappointment for them. So I, it's great that the school, you know, it's it, it's funny because they all like, well, it's a holistic process. If it's such a holistic process, then why is it that you happen to have the highest GMAT score every year? Like that's weird. You would think that it would it would fluctuate and it would be a lot, yeah, it'd be a little bit more ups and downs between that. I just I wish that for all the emphasis on the GMAT that they would also publish other data. I don't know, like how many people in our class were promoted early by their firm? How many people in our class had 
P&L experience? How many people in our class, if they came from an analyst, like a ranked analyst program, how many people were in the top 1% of analysts in their analyst class or whatever? You know, I wish they would also provide other metrics of, in terms of like the quality of the candidates, because a 738, a 740 GMAT is not going to get you into Stanford. A 680 might get you in if you were helping a company launch its operations in Italy. And you know what I mean? You've knocked it out of the park. So it's just, I wish that they would, they would either like not focus on this stuff at all, or if, since that's unavoidable because of the rankings dog and pony show, then at least provide other data a little bit more like, hey, you know, you know, you, yeah, 740 is great, but also it would be really cool if you were a top performer and if you had convinced a, a company to change direction or if you had convinced a local government to implement a new service that supports women entrepreneurs or, you know, a little bit more data like that. Because I think when we when you report simplistic data, you get simplistic judgments from applicants that sometimes are not beneficial. Yeah, that's that's really a good point. Because those other data points that you suggested reporting would really help a lot of people, frankly, and would would certainly confirm the quality overall of the entering classes at, at some of the top schools. And Stanford does report, for example, first-generation college students. They're saying, for example, that uh, the students who were the first in their family to graduate from a four-year college or university this year uh, went up by a third to 12% of the class, up from 9% a year earlier. And what's interesting to me about that stat, and I think you've mentioned this in earlier podcasts, Maria, you know, sometimes if you admit, let's say white students from socioeconomic backgrounds uh, that weren't privileged, you, you kind of don't get credit for that. And you probably should in diversity terms. Because the school also reported increased Black American students by 43% this year to 10% up from 7. Asian Americans were increased by 30% to, to almost a third of the class. And Hispanics rose about 9% to compose 12% of the incoming students. So there's a lot of attention being paid, obviously, to the racial and ethnic diversity of the class. Uh, that is true at all business schools today in the U.S. where this has become um, a really hot issue. The uh, other interesting thing is that while uh, Harvard and Wharton, you know, considered the peer schools to uh, Stanford for sure, hit record levels of women in the class, Stanford was down on women. 44% of the incoming students are female, down from 47% a year earlier. And that's when Wharton, you'll recall, exceeded gender parity with a record 52%. And Harvard achieved a record of 46%. Now, there isn't a whole lot of difference from Harvard at 46 and Stanford at 44, even though it's a three percentage point decline for Stanford from the year earlier. But what, what, do, you, what do you make of that, Maria? What, why do you think? Because you got to know they were aiming uh, to get closer to the uh, gender parity, having been only three percentage points below it last year. I mean, it's an imperfect, I mean, Caroline can probably talk to this infinitely more than I can. I mean, it's an imperfect thing. They might have given offers to 50% of women, 50% women, 50% men offers, but maybe for whatever reason, women chose to go someplace else. So you you can try as much as, as hard as you want to kind of engineer some of these things. But I also think at the end of the day, and especially like if, we, if we're talking about Stanford, which has a relatively small class, 
you know, I haven't, I haven't done the math. I, I do not have my Excel spreadsheet open right now, but if we're talking like a 3% difference, if we're you know probably not talking, you know, less than 10, 12, I don't know. Oh, gosh, I should, I should have opened the Excel spreadsheet before I started talking on this point. But the point is like, it's we're not talking about like, you know, it's not like a hundred women. That's a really like, good it's a, it's point. It's a pretty small number. So, Absolutely. you know, these, these fluctuations, I don't, it's silly. I think. Yes. Because there are only, what is it, 430, 36 uh, students, something like that, in, in Stanford's uh, uh, class. I think that's what the number is. Uh, exactly. Yeah, we're talking about 12, 12, 13, about 13 students would be a 3%. Yeah. 3% of the class is 13 students. But, you know, it, it, to me, in a way, it does speak to, you can't, you know, you, you, you put your finger on one uh, lever and it affects other levels. So, you know, if you want more Black American students, more Hispanics, more Asian Americans, you want more internationals because, of course, they increase. You want more first-generation college students. Maybe something else is going to you know, just go off kilter. I can imagine that, Caroline, when you were managing the numbers at NCAD, this kind of thing happened where you try to, to increase something and then obviously something else falls. Yeah, it's a lot of there's a lot of variables to manage at the same time, and yeah, I, I definitely um, it's definitely the case that that yield is typically lower on women admits versus male admits because there's there's just more competition amongst the top schools for those fantastic women candidates. So I'm sure that's the case that they have made you know an equivalent number of offers to to female candidates as to as to men, but their yield would have been lower. And the other thing we don't know is the financial incentives, right? Because if you increase racial and ethnic diversity in the school, uh, when you don't increase gender diversity, you might presume that more of the financial rewards are going to the diverse candidates to get them to come because they're less likely to have savings and money or want to take out big loans to the extent that you only have available pool of scholarship money. Mm. And you're then you shovel more to get the racial and ethnic diversity, you might hurt the gender diversity. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Although I think the top schools don't have too much of an issue with the depth of their pockets. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do think that sometimes female candidates are more swayed by scholarship offers than male candidates. I have seen that in my clients that sometimes men are more willing to walk away from a great scholarship offer from one school because they just really want to go to the other school. I mean, I have with my husband, he had a scholarship offer from HBS and didn't get any scholarship money at all from GSB. And, you know, what do you do, right? But he just really wants to go to the GSB. And I think men sometimes are more likely to that make that decision than, than women are because sometimes women can be a bit more risk averse. Practical. <laughs> That's true. That's right. We're not as crazy. <laughs> calculated risk as opposed to reckless risk uh, yes and and overconfidence in one's ability to uh, yeah. I, I, think, I that think that's more it i <laughs> i was keeping my mouth up and i'm like i think it's more a little bit you know, this expectation that men, like women are like, okay, well, I don't know. But like, I'll probably make more money if I get an MBA, but who knows? What if I have kids and what if I need to stay home? And I think men are like, whatever. If I get into of a course. school, I'm, becoming the, yeah. I'm going to be the CEO of Apple tomorrow. Look out. That's world, right. You know? That's right. <laughs> For sure. Tim Cook, watch out. <laughs> oh boy. He's shaking in his boots. 
<laughs> yeah, and, and the bottom line, of course, with this and every of the class profiles at these great schools, again, it's it's a testament to the incredible quality, the diversity, the richness of the candidate pool and the, and the enrolled student body for each of these schools. I mean, these these are just exceptional people on every level. I mean, to think that, you know, that they're in the top 3% of all GMAT test takers, they have the highest average GPAs, the highest GREs, the diversities, while some people I'm sure would take issue with some of the numbers, is, is fantastic, really. And that doesn't even include the work backgrounds. The international uh, student body went up significantly, as it has at uh, all the schools, because the year earlier comparison was affected by the pandemic, travel restrictions, visa difficulties. So, in fact, the international MBA students is up to 47% at Stanford, which is a more than a third increase from the previous year when it was down due to the pandemic. So, all in all, you know, a great class. And while Stanford won't tell you what its admit rate is, we're estimating it's about 8.7% which is also the lowest of any prestige MBA program in the world. That has historically been true at Stanford. Harvard is close, 9% or so, and Wharton's, you know, slightly above 20. But there you have it. 